You are listening to a podcast from The National. Iraq needs $2 billion to revive its cultural heritage and renovate areas destroyed by ISIS. But the country says it does not have the capacity to rebuild without support from the international community. And in war-torn Afghanistan, child violence is on the rise more than 15 years after the U.S. war in the country began. We'll discuss both Iraq's cultural revival and the rising child death toll in Afghanistan on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasser al-Wesmi. of Mosul deserves a future. They deserve to see, they deserve to rebuild their future and uh, their, uh, uh, their city once again. That's Nur al-Kaabi, the UAE Minister of Culture, at the Reviving the Spirit of Mosul conference in Paris. Numerous Iraqi cities were flattened to rubble in the three-year occupation under ISIS and the battle to regain control. Now, almost a year after the defeat of ISIS, the country is asking for money to begin a project that officials say encapsulates Iraqi identity. Iraq's cultural revival is so important that its budget accounts for more than 2% of the $80 billion needed to rebuild the entire country. Iraq over this week held a conference with UNESCO focused on attracting dozens of potential donors. But with more pressing concerns such as education and political stability, how difficult is it to raise money for what some might consider a frivolous indulgence? We go to Mina El-Durubi, who joins us on the phone from Paris, where she is covering the conference for The National. She tells us why Mosul is so culturally important. Well, Nasser, Mosul is one of um, Iraq's largest cities. It's rich in history and in culture. For centuries, Mosul was a crossroad for culture in the Middle East, from the Sumerian cities to Babylon, from the walls of Nineveh to the Silk Road. The region has been a melting pot of people and ideas. And between, unfortunately, between 2014 and 2017, this story of peace, and as it was described in the uh, in the conference, um, the true spirit of Muslim has been overshadowed by another story of hatred and violence when ISIS took over. And also, the Iraqi Minister of Culture told me that the city is, is a living symbol for the identity of the Iraqis. It's rich in inheritance, in, in, in history, and it, and it was also known as um, a center of, of trade. But it was also known as a heartland for culture and civilization, and not only in the Middle East, but also in the world. UNESCO clearly is playing a huge part in this, but what is their role exactly? UNESCO's efforts are set to focus on restoring the city's rich heritage, rehabilitate its education system, and revitalize its cultural life. Um, UNESCO is going to position itself as the coordinator of the reconstruction efforts in partnership with the Iraqi government to rebuild landmarks that were destroyed by ISIS during its three-year occupation of the city. UNESCO will also head the restoration of the city's central library at its university, churches, city's market, and a Yazidi temple. And the purpose of the meeting was to mo- really to mobilize the international community for the reconstruction and recovery of the city, to take stock of the current situation on the ground, and to also present a list of major projects that will contribute to the uh, rehabilitation of Mosul's heritage site, and it's and also its uh, education educational institutions. And the the other objective, which I think is really important, is um, is UNESCO is going to launch a trust fund 
that will help to finance the projects of the initiative over the next coming years. This is clearly a massive undertaking. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions. Uh, the budget is quite large. And this might be an odd question. I think you touched about it earlier, but why is it so culturally important right now for the Iraqi people when, you know, parts of their countries are, are part of the country is destroyed? Uh, they have other perhaps priorities over the reconstruction of a cultural heritage site. You're absolutely right, Nasser. Um, the Iraqi government estimates um, that Muslim needs uh, $2 billion to recover from this, um, for, from this devastation that, that it went through. And it estimates that Iraq as a whole needs about $88 billion um, to, to, to sort of like get back on track and get back to um, get back to the way it was before, prior to when ISIS took over. Um, and, you know, culture is really important to the Iraqi people. It's about identity and a sense of belonging. And that is what is required for a peaceful coexistence. For, for me, I feel that it will give Iraqis back their history, their identity and their country that was taken away from them. And especially, um, you know, citizens in Mosul. The conference really focused on the fact that ISIS flourished and thrived on ignorance. And, you know, the most powerful tool in fighting extremism is education. And that's what UNESCO is trying to sort of focus on. It's trying to ensure that the education system in Mosul and the whole of Iraq is back on, back on track. The UAE Minister of Culture, Noor al-Kaabi, uh, was there. She said that Iraqi youth should be involved in the reconstruction project of Mosul's mosque. How and why does she want them involved? So the UAE in April announced it will finance a $50 million uh, project to rebuild Mosul's Grand al-Nurima. The building is is famous for its 8th century leaning minaret. Now, ISIS destroyed um, the mosque in the final weeks of the U.S.-backed Iraqi campaign that ousted the insurgents from Mosul last July. And it was actually from Al-Nuri Mosque that ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared a self-styled caliphate in 2014. The UAE's Minister of Culture, Noor al-Kabi, is doing an excellent job. And she told me that it's vital to include the youth because she wants to give them the opportunity to be able to rebuild their own city so that they can feel like they have their home back, they have a stay in their city's rebuilding. This isn't just about a reconstruction of heritage project, right? How does this benefit other sectors? So, I mean, this conference comes at a key moment for Iraq. I mean, it aims to unite all actors and international it aims to unite all actors of the international community and make solid commitments for the reconstruction and recovery of Mosul. Like I said, it presents hope for Iraqis that their lives can go back to normal, they can find jobs, they can complete their studies, and they can just have a normal life. I mean, it also presents opportunities of investment, um, which will in turn lead to job opportunities and giving back people the opportunity to live in peace and to coexist. Child mortality in Afghanistan is on the rise. Last month, a suicide bombing killed 34 in a classroom in Kabul. Most of those murdered were children. 
These deaths were among the 1,700 civilians killed in the country over the last six months, the highest civilian death toll in the same period in the last 10 years. Now, with the elections less than a year away, the country still struggles with security. We now turn to Preeti Nalu, a migration and displacement analyst who, in an op-ed for The National, wrote about what needs to be done to curb the violence in the country. She joins us on the phone, having just returned from a reporting trip in Afghanistan earlier this year, and tells us about the situation firsthand. Well, you know, Nasser, the statistics for themselves, the UN mission to Afghanistan reported that the first half of 2018 was the most violent period compared to the same spans of time in the past decade. But let me try and both humanize and contextualize the situation a bit for you. Uh, the op-ed starts with a short description of my observation of street-working children in Kabul. I'd been visiting different neighborhoods of the capital for a research project on displacement. And it was in that market of Western Kabul over a group of small street-working children that surrounded us that both fear and guilt set in suddenly. Um, the social worker I was with made a remark that stayed with me. She said, you can't possibly help every child in that crowd and that she'd seen the number of working children in the city mushroom over the years as the war continued and as institutions collapsed. So these children essentially embodied the failure of government, the humanitarian sector, and generally society at large in protecting its youngest citizens. She even said my staying any longer would get the children into trouble with their so-called employers. So this is where things stand in Afghanistan and, in Cap and even in the capital, Kabul, um, a combination of dejection, acceptance over the current realities where about 60% of the children are engaged in some sort of labor, and of course afraid institutions that are struggling to protect, let alone invest in the future of the country, which is its boys and girls. And the government of Afghanistan, are they implementing any sort of policy to remedy that? And if so, do the measures taken have an impact on reducing child violence? Is it effective? The problem is measures or no measures, the widespread violence in the country is a leading reason for children not attending schools at the moment because they're often far from their homes and unsafe. Um, Afghanistan is still suspended in that liminal space between conflict and recovery. And despite uh, billions of dollars being pumped into the globally funded so-called reconstruction efforts, protect protection for children remains precarious and their future prospects remain threadbare. Uh, latest U.S. government assessments admit that their goals of growth and stabilization are unrealistic and that its aid agencies are simply not able to implement what they've promised because of the incessant chronic violence. And what happens is that generations of uh, children pay the price of the violence, which is now taking a much more vicious guise. We see a lot of uh, suicide bombings and complex attacks that are unpredictable. Um, and they've doubled so far this year. This is an important statistic to remember. Uh, the positive news is that the blueprints that can facilitate the long-term protection of children do exist. So while acknowledging that these street-working children are the result of socioeconomic deterioration, partly because of the conflict and displacement, the Afghan government launched a national strategy. And this strategy aims to tackle hazardous forms of child labor. But the point is that the plan cannot succeed without supporting a majority of Afghan families with services and access to livelihood. 
and by also bolstering both the coping and accountability mechanisms in these local communities. There is a frayed social fabric that needs serious mending. And most importantly, economic and social stability are simply impossible without a politically negotiated peace process. You also mentioned in your article that more than a thousand schools in Afghanistan remain closed. How long has this been going on and how are children receiving their education? Well, shutting down of schools and attacks on education have sadly been part of a chronic syndrome for the past decade, I would say. Uh, Progress has been made in certain parts of the country where schools have been reopened and education is being offered, especially with a focus on female students. And in fact, NATO often hails education in Afghanistan as one of the more tangible areas of success. But as organizations like uh, the Norwegian Refugee Council um, has repeatedly pointed out, attacks on schools and students, lack of classrooms and teachers, impoverishment, child labor and trauma among children are jeopardizing these gains. And we also have to take into account the ubiquitous uh, reluctance among parents to send children to schools, partly because the route to school is often unsafe, but partly also because they see um, education as not necessarily a worthy investment that will lead to stable futures. So how does Afghanistan stop this way of thinking? Uh, Well, there has to be tangible progress with the peace process. It has to go beyond the symbolic meetings and the short-lived ceasefires. Uh, Also, the U.S. and their allies must recognize the growing Afghan civilian-led mobilization and its engagement with local leadership in different provinces. They have diverse and sometimes competing but often conducive views on solutions to the conflict, and they have to be taken into account. Uh, Having outlasted several governments, the Taliban leadership itself and its local manifestations have different mandates that should be taken into account. Uh, We must not forget that the Afghan public has shown a strong appetite for peace. Uh, From what I saw when I was visiting Herat, Jalalabad and Kabul, Afghans transcending ethnic and sectarian lines have been um, gathering in half of the country's provinces since March, and they're calling for a comprehensive ceasefire that can jumpstart peace talks. Such spontaneous reactions and peaceful sit-ins across Taliban's heartland should be welcomed as courageous, informed initiatives. Um, As media and as humanitarian agencies, we must also, and of course as political representatives sitting in Kabul and Washington, we must amplify this pro-peace current. Um, I've spoken with civilian representatives who are planning meetings with Taliban leaders, and they claim that there is a changing mindset among the local leadership there. So instead of waging this blanket war against a supposedly intransigent foe, the Afghan government must leverage the current momentum. If you ask any adult in this sit-in what their most pressing demand is, Securing futures for Afghanistan's children will resonate in responses across the country. I mean, wouldn't that be part of your reply or mine, regardless of any cultural context? So what is the U.S. involvement in what's happening in Afghanistan right now? You know, as far as the U.S. is concerned, um, instead of spending scant military resources and bombing the enemy to the negotiating table, as President Trump calls it, according to his recent policy, All the different internal and external actors in Afghanistan must also be um, engaged to prepare a common ground 
And they are trying to breathe life into the flatlining peace process. And many talks are indeed taking place with different parties, and these need to be resuscitated. What is interesting to note today that while countries at peace like the U.S. mark past suicide attacks, the twin tower attacks in New York, um, having taken place 17 years ago, as of course important reminders of the lives lost, Similar targeted attacks against Afghan civilians have become an all-too-common reality in the country. While attention from the so-called international community is fading, there's simply too many anniversaries to mark in Afghanistan and an unforgivable number of lives lost in this chronic conflict. Yet, there's no clear end in sight. I mean, 17 years after the U.S. entered Afghanistan under the premise of dismantling al-Qaeda, Security seems to remain an ephemeral notion for Afghanistan's youngest children, and we can't forget that. Thanks to Mina Drubi and Preeti Nalu for their insights. Also, thanks to Kevin Jeffers for producing. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to receive new episodes each week. You can find us on your preferred podcasting apps such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Audioboom. Also, follow along with the developments in the Middle East on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thanks for listening.